Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Candace Malcolm Show. Today, we are in conversation with a special guest. Very excited uh, to be joined by Douglas Murray. Douglas is an international best-selling author, author of the book The Strange Death of Europe, which came out in 2017. Excellent book, which I recommend. And his most recent book, The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity. Douglas Murray joins me on the line. Welcome, Douglas, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Candice. Thank you. Yeah, so I first, you know, I, I always look to you, Douglas, for your reaction on sort of global events. You always just have such a succinct um, and, and you sort of cut through everything in your analysis, uh, whether it was on sort of the news about Prince uh, William, sorry, Prince Harry and uh, Meghan Markle leaving the royal family or about Jordan Peterson, about any, any number of events going on in the world. You always have uh, such a great way of looking at things. So, you know, the world is sort of in, in, in chaos right now. Um, as the World Health Organization announced the um, fact that the coronavirus, the Wuhan coronavirus, is now a pandemic. So just quickly, what are your thoughts on what's happening all over the world and the reaction? Well, like everyone, I'm uh, deeply concerned and trying to you know, learn as much as I can from reasonable and responsible sources and trying to work out that balance between uh, a lack of caution and over-caution. You know, um, and... I think it's uh, at times like this that one has to be especially judicious and careful with any and all pronouncements. I'm um, I'm uh, shocked but not surprised at the number of people who've chosen to use this as an opportunity to <laughs> grandstand as experts in pandemics as well as experts in everything else. But I'm not an expert in pandemics, and so I simply want to hear from those who are. Right. And, and there's sort of, you know, the two camps, one, one saying that, you know, this is just like everything else, uh, you know, obvious overreaction, similar to the way they drum up fear about, you know, climate change and alarmism around that. Um, and, and, and again, yeah, use it as an example um, to criticize us and lecture us about xenophobia and how closing borders mm -hmm. won't react. But then, you know, there's the other camp of people who are looking at the exponential growth in terms of uh, the infection rate saying this is really scary. I think the latest figures estimate that somewhere between 30 and 70 percent of people in Canada anyway could get it. Um, so yeah. where, where do you fall in those two camps? Well, you see, I, I think the idea that there are two camps on this is part of the problem. I, what this has exposed once again is the fact that in societies like Canada and America and Britain, we are lacking a uniting narrative. There is an almost 50-50 split in some countries, almost exactly 50-50 split down the, set the general public. And uh, we see everything in our day through hyper-politicized lenses. I mean, in America, obviously, there's the Trump, anti-Trump lens. In the UK, there has been until recently, but there are still remnants of it, the pro or anti-Brexit lens. And, and when people become totally fixated on such a narrative, they need to fit everything available into that narrative. And one of the things I just strongly urge people to do is to avoid that, you know, it, apart from anything else, because it makes us stupider, vastly, vastly stupider than we need to be. You know, coronavirus doesn't need to fit into the lens of is one anti or pro Justin Trudeau or anti or pro Donald Trump or anti or pro Do uh, Boris Johnson. You know, and I just sort of think, for the love of God, can, can people not see this 
through the hyper-politicized, simplistic lens through which in recent years we have been tempted to see absolutely everything. You know, I can see the Trump supporters saying, you know, uh, uh, it's just it's just a flu because they worry that with the economy going through a massive stress test, that this is going to impact on their guy. And I can see the anti-Trump people positively willing this to be more apocalyptic than it need to be in order that they can get Trump out of office later this year. And I just... I just look at this and think, wow, wow, what, what does somebody have to become to do that with something that is a non-political human catastrophe? Yeah, and for just sort of the casual observer, it's really difficult to cut through the politics. I, th I think politicians naturally have... Uh, an incentive to downplay any kind of major world crisis like this um, because of, like you said, the impact on the economy. We've seen the stock market just absolutely tank. And mm. so politicians sort of have this mantra like keep calm, carry on. We don't want people to panic. Yes. That's but, totally reasonable. Yeah. But, but yet, you know, perhaps the, the, the more sage advice at this point is that we should make radical changes uh, to our lives. Uh, my family and I have decided to self-quarantine. I'm filming this interview uh, in one of the spare bedrooms in my house because we've decided to just stay at home for a while um, because mm -hmm. it looks like there might be an outbreak in Toronto. So do you think that there's a little bit of, uh, of um, a lack of incentives for, for politicians to do the right thing in, in a situation like this? Uh, no, I don't think there's a lack of incentive to do the right thing. I think that these are in, in unusual situations like this are extraordinary tests for politicians. But, I mean, I would like to think that as a society we were able to see people acting as well as they can in positions of power given the information they have. And let's not forget this has all been evolving very swiftly. I mean, it was only a few weeks ago that the mayor of Milan was saying, you know, um, uh, 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 this isn't going to change Milan, go out, keep shopping, you know, and, and a few weeks later his entire city is in lockdown. Um and I don't think that's because the mayor of Milan is a particularly terrible or horrible person. I simply think it's that he was adapting to the information he had and the severity of the, of, of the challenge. Uh, and I, I wish we had any remaining unity in our countries to view other political leaders in that light. I'm, I'm just very sorry, as I say, that that in all of our societies we have this opportunity cost from viewing everything through this dull, monochrome, monotone debate about whether you're pro or anti one particular individual. I mean, of course there are, there are opportunities in crises like this for people to try to gain political capital, but there's also a there's also a flip side to that, isn't there, which is public disdain for politicians seen correctly to be doing that or attempting to do that. I mean, in my own country, in the United Kingdom, the head of the Scottish National Party attended the COBRA meeting on uh, on how to deal with it. She's the first minister in Scotland and uh, um, a separatist and nationalist. And she decided, having come out of that meeting, to announce the findings of the meeting first in order to look like a serious, big, national, international stage politician. 
And I hope that lots of people saw that like I did and just thought, ugh, ugh, what a thing to do, you know? Yeah, and it also seems, uh, you know, that it has caught several world leaders flat-footed. I, I know you said earlier that there's sort of a, an instinct to be in, like, the pro-Justin Trudeau camp or mm. the anti-camp, just like Trump, just like Brexit. Uh, but I, I think in Canada there are definitely um, valid, valid criticisms of, of Justin Trudeau that I, I wanted to chat with you a little bit about because I think mm. they touch on some of the themes that sure. you've written about in your book. So Justin Trudeau is sort of known as the, you know, the world's biggest and best virtue signaler. He's sort of embodying mm. the sort of, um, you know, progressive, liberal um, kind of idea. He's a proud feminist. And, you know, his favorite thing to say is that diversity is our strength. Um, and yet, you know, right in the middle of the election campaign, we, we found pictures of him uh, painted in, in blackface. Uh, oh, you know, yeah, that, that that made it to me as well. Yeah, that's yeah <laughs> kind of like, you know, one of the worst uh, racist tropes out there. And, you know, even when the pictures were, were taken, it, it still wasn't okay back then. You know, we're talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a son of privilege, he was born while his father was prime minister. Uh, you, you'd think that he would be aware uh, of, of the sort of inappropriateness of, of that attire, uh, and yet he sort of offered a, a humble apology and Canadians just sort of shrugged their shoulders and he was reelected <laughs> to, mm. to, to office. You know, so, so, so why is it that uh, hypocrites like Justin Trudeau seem to get away with this kind of behavior? Well, to steel man the argument, it is that the reason that Justin Trudeau got away with blackface would be because he is not perceived to have done other things, which could mean he could be plausibly described as a racist or, you know, a, a, a sort of segregationist, shall we say. Whereas, and I'm, again, I'm steel manning the argument, whereas, I don't know, if Donald Trump had been found to have in the last 20 years done a lot of blackface, indeed as much as Justin Trudeau did, which appears to have included evenings on his own without even going to a fancy dress party. I mean, he seemed to have done it so much, he'd sort of lost count of the number of times. Um, uh, if Donald Trump had done that, people would say, aha, this is not a, a single thing. This is part of a continuum of a president who is a racist and who has done this racist thing and it's totally in character. Now, that's the steel manning argument. Um, and, and I think that, that what is happening on these cases is that, is that figures who have, who have, broadly speaking, taken the most um, uh, um, accommodating, um, non, uh, uh, well, no, open borders, shall we say, view of this. Yeah, the people for whom um, race relations and uh, integration and immigration are basically a case of kumbaya, um, those people are given the points that allow them to screw up somewhere in the process. So they might misspeak to use the famous Clintonism. You know, they might have done something dodgy-ish, you know, once, like Justin Trudeau. But it's not seen as... It's seen as being human to fail. Whereas there are these other people set up as great bogeymen of the right, obviously, in particular, who are seen to be 
um, already mean-spirited and mean-hearted, and therefore you can't give them uh, an inch, and you have to interpret everything in the most malevolent light. So it is definitely, the Trudeau thing is definitely part of, of that pattern. And I think that's because that's the direction of the age at the moment, or up to the present moment, shall we say, because everything could change. But up to the present moment, for instance, there has been no um, public virtue benefit to, for instance, being a, um, a, a supporter of restrictionist immigration policies. It is seen as being only a sign of negative um, political and personal expression. And that can change. It can change incredibly rapidly. It's something that I, I dealt with a bit in the strange death of Europe. You know, what happens when the open borders people suddenly look like they're responsible for an atrocity? You know, at such moments, the whole calculus shifts or it can swing. And maybe, you know, maybe this is such a moment that we're going through now. I mean, only a few weeks ago, Ma uh, Matteo Salvini, the former Italian foreign minister and uh, uh, interior minister and, and uh, deputy prime minister, effectively, uh, Matteo Salvini said a few weeks ago, he's currently out of office, uh, that uh, the country, Italy, should shut its borders and was condemned as a, a racist by his political opponents. You know, but now the country has shut its borders. Uh, what happens in that situation do the people who are on the wrong side of that as it turns out make any apology or shift their own situation I doubt it but but the public can notice these sorts of things well it's interesting that you mentioned that because when the first case of corona was reported in Toronto which I, I guess was now like late late January early February a bunch of officials held press conferences um, condemning racism and saying that mm. it was unfair to the Chinese community in Canada uh, to, mm. to, for, for the reactions that people were having without any specific examples. Uh, they just sort of jumped right to, you know, Canadians are racist in their reaction. Yes. Um, and they were condemning some of the concepts that were being floated around, like the idea that if you return from a trip to China, you should self-quarantine. Um, that 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 yeah. that suggestion was was being categorized as racist just last yes, month. Yes, the that's, same thing. Yeah, the same thing has happened in America and pretty much everywhere else. Right. So, so uh, I just wanted to pick up on on a point that you just made about how the people who had always been calling for open borders could could suddenly shift and then become seen as sort of uh, you know part of the problem if there was a catastrophe. Uh, that moment certainly has not happened in Canada. Canada has had uh, an ongoing flow of illegal immigration, the largest numbers that we've ever seen um, in our history, sort of coincided with Donald Trump getting elected uh, president of the United States to Justin Trudeau sending out uh, a message on Twitter saying Canada will welcome basically uh, any and all refugees. Um, and it was sort of seen mm -hmm. as an open border declaration. Uh, we've had tens of thousands of, of migrants streaming across the land border from the United States to Canada. Mm -hmm. And and we really hit that situation where you're talking about that anyone who criticizes the situation, anyone who even says that it's illegal immigration um, gets deemed a racist, gets deemed un-Canadian, um, and, mm -hmm. and sort of gets every name uh, thrown at them. Um, it's actually funny, uh, reporters, news reporters in Canada used to commonly refer to this as illegal immigration. Then the Trudeau government held a series of press conferences saying that, that, that it shouldn't be called illegal immigration, it should be called irregular immigration. And then, and, then, <laughs> and then all the news media just sort of fell in line and it was like, 
that from that day forth, every every report called it irregular immigration, and and that was sort of well, like illegal was a dog whistle. So that's that's a very but you know just a, that's very similar to what's been happening with the Corona situation. CNN in America has in recent days been criticizing various Trump supporters and Trump officials for referring to the Chinese virus or to the Chinese Wuhan virus and so on. And and yet there are dozens of videos you can see online of CNN reporters using exactly the same terminology up until yesterday, you know. And so w what is what is really going on here? I just said there's two things in each of these cases. Uh, one is it's it, in the face of potentially catastrophic events or at least world changing events. It is much easier as societies, like with individuals, to focus on the small number of things we correctly or otherwise believe to be within our control. Because there is so much that is outside of our control. You know, we cannot do anything to stop potentially thousands of people dying in Europe, in Italy, anywhere else. We can do very little to stop the stock market crashing in such a way that a lot of Canadian uh, house owners are in serious financial trouble at some point. We can do very little to nothing about these things. So we very often, I think, as human beings, console ourselves with what we cannot deal with by doubling down, being especially pernickety about those remaining things we correctly or otherwise think are in our control and within our competency at such moments. Uh, like, a, uh, like a cat that, you know, sort of grooms themselves at a moment of disaster, you know, you know because it can't do anything with the wider situation it finds itself in. And I think that that is the first, the first thing that is going on. The second is... We have, and I, I've written about this a lot, as you know, we all always have in every age sacred values. And in a way, the interesting thing of our age is working out what those sacred values are. In Canada in particular, those sacred uh, values include, you know, openness, tolerance. Uh, that includes open borders, um you know, unrestricted immigration, uh, um, not wanting to call anyone illegal and all of that bucket of familiar uh, tropes. And that is effectively a sacred value. The interesting thing at major shifting points is, are your sacred values strongly enough held by you that you will hold them up to and past the point at which they turn out to actually be destructive. And I would say that there is a significant stress test of that at the moment. There would be, by the way, in Canada, if you had immigration like, say, Italy or Greece has had in the last decade. You see, my belief is that the Canadian situation is very interesting because, among other things, you have a lot of immigration, including a lot of illegal immigration, but you don't have Africa on your doorstep. You know, you've got America. If you had a massively growing population continent to your south, only a couple of hours boat ride away, 
and the Canadian public forever talking about how grand and open they were, were actually discovering that at some stage it's about whether you take in the whole world or not. I don't think that this sacred value of modern Canada holds any more than it does in the Greek population or the Italian population. And that's when you lose these habits of recent years quite fast. Absolutely. Uh, I always say that Canada is sort of blessed by geography and just that we have these vast oceans separating us from any war yes. zone or any trouble spot. And even the people who do stream in from the United States, uh, they are most, not mostly, I would say, a lot of them are people who uh, are sort of illegally in the United States who fear getting deported. So they go up to Canada mm. instead, or they've heard of a sort of uh, they, a scam, like a global scam, where they can fly to the United States, sort of purchase a bus mm. ticket, go to the north, and then travel across to get sort of free healthcare and all that kind of stuff. But that that still is quite a barrier to entry. That you, you don't just have the sort of most helpless people um, who 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 don't ha who are totally destitute. Showing yeah. Up. So we do we do have that sort of buffer, which I think enables us to to maintain the the sort of image. Yeah, one, one way of thinking about it is you have the, it's a buffer and you also can allow yourselves the luxury. You can allow the, yourselves the luxury of attitudes and poses that you could not allow yourself if you lived in the reality that, for instance, Mediterranean Europe lives in. So You can treat yourselves to it. Have you noticed a major change or shift in, in, in attitudes in Europe or in, in the United Kingdom, I know. It's really interesting because I think it was a decade ago now that major uh, European leaders declared that multiculturalism was a failed experiment. Um, mm. And yet after that was when they sort of did the big open border call, including An right. Angela Merkel herself said that, that mm. multiculturalism was a failed experiment. So, you know, it's really curious to understand why a couple of years later she would completely do an about-face and, and open the border up. Yeah. Supposedly it was uh, for, for to help boost Germany's economy and Germany's economy and, hmm. and build, bring in a bunch of workers, but you look at uh, stagnant growth in Germany, that certainly hasn't happened. Um, have, yeah. have you noticed a major change in attitudes? You know, all of these games, well, they're not games, of course, but all of these, uh, all of these let's call them games of the time being, are, are going on simultaneously, where there is a permissible political discussion and there is a permissible political discussion on the left and a permissible political discussion on the right and then there's the public discussion then there's what the public says in public versus what the public does in the privacy of the ballot box you know uh, there's an awful lot going on on these really difficult complex questions which do undoubtedly have a moral dimension as well as a practical one yeah the the, the, the merkel case you, you mentioned I, I i was very interested in it was in potsdam in 2010 2011 that merkel gave that speech and it was five years later that she then opened the borders of germany and uh yes they then made up excuses retrospectively for why they did that um it was simply not the case that germany you know, desperately wanted foreign labor and decided that the means of achieving that was not through an orderly process of applying and, you know, 
asking for a certain number of workers to fill certain roles and then you know sifting them and going through effectively a job application process it it, it, it it's that's what you would have done if you'd have been serious about that. You definitely, what you wouldn't do is to say normal asylum procedures have been suspended and anyone who walks into Germany can can be here. Um, so there, that was just a lie. It was just a it was just a retrospective attempt to justify something they'd done. Uh, these things shift all the time, and you know, for instance, in my own country in Britain. Uh, concern about immigration has actually gone down a bit in recent years. And one reason for that, I believe, is that the British public think by having voted Brexit and now having left the European Union, um, that, that they have effectively, they've got something. They, they got a bit of what they wanted. They, they, they sent out the message on immigration. And so they feel a bit more relaxed about it. And I think all political leaders should learn something from that, by the way. You know, you, 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 I'm not saying that people should do tokenistic things very far from it, but they should learn from the fact that it's when the public feel that they are not being listened to in their concerns that the politics has a possibility of going rancid. Right. And you could probably say the same thing about uh, Americans with Trump that, you know, yeah. A way to understand that is just so many people were frustrated with the political consensus and political elites that yeah. Donald Trump was like a big middle finger to the elites. And, and then, yeah. you know, they felt better about it and they could relax. Absolutely. Relax for a few years and enjoy the show. Yeah. Well, we haven't had any kind of a moment like that in Canada just yet, I would argue. No. Um, but I think it's building up. Part of the problem with illegal immigration is that, I mean, Canada is, is such a pro-immigration country. It's such a welcoming place. Um, but the more you have you know, cases and stories and everything of of the sort of undermining of Canada's orderly immigration, it really wears on public trust mm. in the system. And, and eventually there could be some kind of a tipping point. Yeah, I'm not a great fan of the tipping point idea myself because there are so many, you know, you can fool yourself into thinking, aha, this will be the great tipping point. Right. And it it passes like everything else and nothing meaningful happens. I, I lost count of one of the reasons I'm skeptical about it is because I lost count of tipping points and uh, of writing and thinking. You know, is this a tipping point? And it just just wasn't. You know, like if you'd have said to me, "How about if uh, the son of a couple who people who'd fled from Libya to the UK because they'd fallen out with Gaddafi because they were members of a an Islamist group too extreme for Gaddafi." Uh, uh, basically, the Al Qaeda affiliate in Lib Libya. Mm -hmm. Imagine what would happen if their kid, having them being given asylum in the UK, went to a pop concert and blew up more than twenty young women. Like, would that be a tipping point? Well, You'd say, "Oh, yeah, I'd have thought that'd be a tipping point." You're not allowed to do suicide bombings in the UK. Turned out, it wasn't much of a tipping point at all. You suck it up, you absorb it, everyone forgets about it in some way and actually, of course, in another way, they don't. These things go go to some deep underlying sense that is underneath the sort of transitory day-to-day -day thing of politics. Well, in that, that specific case, the terrorist, the would-be terrorist, the person who became a terrorist was rescued with a British ship um, and was able to flee I think it was Libya. Just uh, you know, not too long before he committed that yeah, attack, yeah. he was he was brought back to the UK. 
um, yeah. in a re- rescue effort. So, yeah, I, I suppose I just looking at the data, you know, Canada used to have an overwhelmingly pro-immigration consensus, uh, just public opinion. It was significantly mm. higher than the U.S., the U.K., mm. or Australia. Um, and in the last, I'd say, two decades, it's just kind of come back and now it's pretty much in line with all the other sort of Anglo fear countries. Yeah, um, I noticed that. I noticed that it's it, it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. And I mean, I I think what the way to think about it is probably that the country is is coming to the limits of its tolerance, and uh, those are very interesting times to be alive in. And and it also really depends, Douglas, on what part of the country you're in. Like if you're mm. in Vancouver, there are parts where uh, it's overwhelmingly majority Chinese, where people speak Chinese, signs are in Chinese language, and you you hardly see um, you know a, a, an English face or a, a Canadian face. Uh, whereas you know other parts of the country are just as they have been uh, for, for a long time. And then you have places like Toronto. That, that is a very kind of cosmopolitan, pluralistic society where it's kind of neat to see how the different little communities uh, interact and coincide and, and, and there's sort yeah. of cross-cultural friendships. Like there's a, a mosque that's next to a synagogue and they share a parking lot and they have these hmm. nice, uh, you know, meals together and stuff. And they're always held up as the example of, of how um, in Canada, you know, uh, Jews and Muslims get along. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so, so you have those sort of, uh, moments that make everyone kind of proud and happy of how Canada handles integration. Uh, but then, of course, you also have, uh, you know, some of the really uh, unfortunate situation of people who bring their sort of tribal hatreds to Canada and they manifest in yeah. in, in sort of targeted well, crimes and stuff like that. These, these things are, these are very interesting questions around here because there are several things to say. Well, the first is, you know, the as I perceive it, Canadian identity is is like most identities, um, strongly felt but weakly defined. So that you sort of you feel it in your gut of what knowing what it is, but if pushed to define it, you come up with kind of woolly things. And the problem is, is that that holds for a time, but it finds itself under significant pressure when it comes across identities that are very e- find it very easy to define what they are you know so like woolly happy multiculty sort of societies get along just fine until they find somebody who doesn't want to join in the party or thinks the whole game is horrible and then they have trouble, like we have trouble in Britain, you have trouble in Canada, defining what like un-Canadian activity is. Or at least you can define it if it comes from some far-right white supremacist type who hates all Muslims or something. That's easy to define as anti-Canadian. But what, what does a non-white Canadian's anti-Canadian attitude look like? What would the federal government, what would the government be able to define as being anti-Canadian from such people? What is an anti-Canadian attitude within the Chinese communities in Canada, for instance? Has anyone ever defined them? I doubt it. I doubt it. And then you get to the second one, which is the, the deep underlying thing beneath this discussion in Canada, America, Britain, and basically the Anglosphere. It's the same in, in, in Australia. And it's the same, albeit in more complex version across the continent of Europe, is 
something like this. Do we agree? Are we willing to agree to the presumption of the age, which is that basically white uh, um, European peoples are the sort of totally uninteresting base paint to which you then need to add things in order to produce any color at all. I'm not talking of racial color. I don't like the color of society is in interest, um, uh, um, uh, um, curiosity, artisticness, uh, uh, um, productivity, a whole set of other things. Do we just do we pretend that 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 as it were white European? I'm treading very carefully here because I'm conscious as ever of how detractors might try to dishonestly misrepresent what I'm saying. But do we do we agree to the presumption of the age that sort of white European peoples are uninteresting, um, um, uncolored in the ways I've just described people to, to whom you need to add this mix of the world's other identities to produce anything of any worth? Is it as it were the zero bit on the graph or not? And this is a subject of enormous pain and contention because we all know what we don't want the answers to be. Like, we don't want to give any um, truck or ammunition to the people who do exist out there, minority though they undoubtedly are, who are actually, you know, supremacists about their race and color and and all that sort of thing do we want to give them any any material or not and the answer is obviously not so in order to not give them material we do a certain amount of lying and fibbing or at least not telling the truth which is that actually you know uh british people who went to Canada, for instance, um, are to some extent different and are going to have their own independent uh, culture and norms and mores and, and much more than a Chinese population, for instance, which, which arrives, or a Vietnamese population, or any other. And, and not only that that's inevitable, but that that's fine. You know, that that's just fine. There's nothing unnatural about it. And there's nothing more sinister or less sinister than everyone else. And uh, and the problem is that that's what we haven't been able to. We haven't been able to have that conversation, really, because of our fear of what what it might become. But it's. It, it seems to me not only dishonest but disheartening to an awful lot of people to have it presented in this way that, well, they're Chinese Canadians and these people are Asian Canadians and, and so on. And then there are just these sort of colorless, uh, cultureless, Un, not right to ever celebrate their culture or even identify it people and those are the people we'd sort of like to dilute a bit uh, 
I mean, I mean, I mean, it's, it's this is a horrible conversation to have to address, but it's there, so we might as well start to try to have it out. I totally agree, and the, the part of the problem is that anyone who even tries to start to initiate conversations like this, as difficult as they may be, uh, often gets completely. Uh, written off or, 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 you know, maligned. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a leadership campaign for the Conservative Party, and one of the candidates suggested um, that newcomers to Canada should be uh, asked to pass a Canadian values test. And then that's mm. sort of spun into this whole sort of, you know, uh, crisis of what, what, what are Canadian values? No values mm. are Canadian values. No values aren't Canadian. And, 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 and really sort of trying to say that Anyone even suggesting that there are Canadian values um, must be a xenophobic bigot um, because yeah. they're just trying to stop people uh, probably with, you know, hijabs or something. Or that, that must yeah, be what yeah, it's yeah. all about. I'll and, tell you, by the way, it's, it's worth mentioning because it's quite easy to grouse on this subject. It's important to be positive about it. Let me, let me give one argument for positivity, which is worth, I think, more people in Canada and elsewhere picking up, which is um, – one of the things that's remarkable in this age is that the countries that are most open and tolerant are the ones that allow themselves to be most abused for being intolerant. And uh, they, I have a sort of shorthand a, a way to address this, which is to say, um, I mean, look, look, here in Britain, for instance, we have a Chancellor of the Exchequer, who's the second most important figure in the cabinet, basically after the Prime Minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is child of son of immigrants. The Home Secretary, that's pretty much the third most important figure in the cabinet after the Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, is the daughter of immigrants, Friti Patel, um, and so on and so forth. Um, in other words, these, these countries like Britain that are forever being portrayed as somehow racist societies or unusually bigoted societies, should we say, are actually the ones that just visibly, demonstrably don't have such a problem. This isn't to say that some bigotry doesn't exist or some racism doesn't exist. But it is just to say that, I mean, it's 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 a sort of provably, like, if you were a racist society, I mean, like, Nazi Germany didn't have very many Jews, you know, at the top, indeed, any. Why? Because they were anti-Jews and they wouldn't have done that. So if you were a racist society in the same way, you wouldn't uh, um, have, you know, children of immigrants in your cabinet. Now, but let me flip to the other side of that. Uh, I don't know how well you know China or India, for instance, but there is a very interesting fact about both countries, both significant global economic powers and much more, and both extraordinary civilizations apart from anything else of whom, for, of whom I have enormous amount of admiration. But, um, you know, it is not the case that if you or I moved to China or to India, we would ever be able to find ourselves or our children would be able to find themselves at the top of the governments in those countries. Just not the case. These are ethnically obsessed countries that pay no price on the international stage for that fact. Uh, their leaders can, on occasion, I mean, this is more common in the Middle East, uh, condemn Western countries for not being tolerant enough. You know, I mean, like, like the Saudis condemned the Germans in 2015 for not taking in more refugees. How many refugees did the Saudis take in? None. Zero. Nada. The Iranian government has criticized European countries repeatedly for their so-called bigotry. You know, if, if, if you were a, a non-Iranian 
who moved to Iran, what's your likelihood of breaking it, breaking out and up into society? Pretty much zero. To the top of the government, absolutely zero. This has to be borne in mind. And I think it's something, there's something not just dishonest, but sort of pathetic about seeing Canadians fall for the most malign critical analysis of themselves and taking it as true. Right. And I mean, you look at a country like Iran, it actually used to have some deal of ethnic diversity until they completely banished everyone who wasn't, you know, majority Shiite government. Uh, I think the United States is a great example of this. You know, just four years ago, well, just before four years ago, uh, they had a president who was a member of an ethnic minority group. Uh, I don't think that there's Mm -hmm. any other country in the world that has that or that has had that. Um, And as soon as Barack Obama was out of office and they elected Trump, uh, it was because it was a, a white nationalist movement and uh, mm. white lash, and America was, you know, you know, a distinctly racist society, which, you know, of course, is untrue. Well, Douglas, I, I really appreciate uh, every moment of your time today. It's been such an intriguing conversation. Absolutely, all the best.